You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Peter Pesek, writer, pianist and educator, director of the Science Institute at St. John's College in Santa Fe, where he's musician-in-residence and tutor emeritus. Peter, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Rabbi Neil. Of course. So you've been connected with St. John's College for 40 years. So what was it that brought you to that wonderful place? Well, it was a whole series of events. Um, My life has been started out mostly as a physicist. I studied physics in college and graduate school. But during that time, I also started to play the piano very seriously. Um, as a child, I played violin, but I'd always wanted to play piano. So in graduate school, I was spending so much time in the practice rooms that the fellow music students, probably tired of hearing my mistakes, said, well, you should take piano lessons, huh? you know, and you should work on this. So I did. And after I finished my PhD in physics, um, I decided that I wanted to do other things than be a research physicist. Um, I started teaching in a great books program at Stanford. And taught there for four years and wanted then to find, if I could, a kind of more permanent place to live and work and continue that kind of life where I was reading texts and philosophy and and literature as well as science with students. And someone told me, I didn't know about before, there was this place, St. John's College, and in Santa Fe and Annapolis. I applied here and came in 1980. It was... for me, was a kind of life-changing experience because I didn't think that there was on this earth a place that would even tolerate, much less welcome, someone who is as confused as me, whose interests <laughs> are going in all different directions like that. But being at this college, which, as your you and your readers, listeners may know, um, it emphasizes discussions right. of great texts in sciences as well as philosophy and literature without the usual disciplinary borders that um, uh, limit what can happen in university and college teaching. So for me, it's been an amazing and wonderful home. Um, yes. Yeah. So you're, you're the director of the Science Institute, and, and it focuses, if I'm right, on cosmology, topology, and astronomy. Yes, in this coming summer, it will. Um, it, the idea has been to give people who are interested in St. John's a chance to uh, work on, especially scientific texts, in our way. We have a, a summer classics program, which has been mostly philosophy and literature works. Over a week, there would be five seminars, and people would go and talk with other people about Plato or Henry James or whatever it was. And it seemed to me it would be wonderful if they had a chance to experience the kind of work that we do on science, which I think is very unique in the world. Um, because it involves – it's centered on the participants. Rather, There's no lecturing. It's entirely discussion. Um, and it's very hands-on and the, the, the work of presenting and teaching really devolves on the participants rather than on the tutor as we faculty members are called, not professor or anything like that. 
Um, so this particular summer of 2020, we have three different sessions. One of them is on ancient astronomy before the telescope, and it's using this wonderful new thing that the college has, an armillary sphere, which for which the funds were raised by our seniors and alumni over the last five years and was just installed last summer. And this is the only working uh, instrument of its kind in the world. And this is the kind of instrument that Tycho Brahe used about 1600 to make the observations of then unparalleled accuracy without a telescope but using these kind of spherical um, guidance arcs in this beautiful instrument to make more accurate measurements of the locations of planets over time. So this is the only functioning such instrument that was that's in the world. And wow. in this first week, people will have a chance to learn how to use it from uh, my colleagues Bill Donahue and Phil LeCure, who are both experts in it. Um, and it, uh, Bill, in particular, has made a deep study of Kepler's works, one of the leading authorities really in the whole world on Kepler. So in the second week, and these are all happening in the middle, middle of July, the second week is modern cosmology, and Phil LeCure and I are going to be doing this, and it's a series of readings that begin with Immanuel Kant's first uh, presenting the idea that that our galaxy are, that is not alone in the universe, that that many other sort of nebulous objects are actually island universes like our own. Um, going through uh, the discovery of the expansion of the universe by Edwin Hubble, the in, we want to go really to the present day to dark energy and dark matter and to study the, the papers by, by the original discoverers of these things that there is dark energy and dark matter and the arguments that that those vastly outweigh what we fondly call matter or right. the universe. Uh, this other thing, which really is the universe, we haven't yet really directly observed in that, but now we know it's there. Um, so in this second week, we will do as much observing as we can, but clearly not having these giant telescopes and a lot of time at our disposal, the idea will be to be able to read the papers and especially for the participants to discuss what do these ideas mean? What does it mean that the universe is expanding exactly? Right. Uh, what doesn't it mean? How, how can one wrap one's mind around such a concept that's so big and so strange as that? And the final week uh, is quite different from these two, which have a kind of linkage through their concern with looking up at the sky, is about topology, um, which is a branch of modern mathematics that concerns uh, the uh, how objects are the, in space, in geometry, but without the concentrating on the details of their exact structure in the way that geometry does, the angles on the triangle. Here it's more the general study of shape and nearness. And this has really become, since about 1800, one of the central parts of modern mathematics. And so we've put together, and Guillermo Bleichmar, my colleague, and I will be leading this series of papers that start with uh, Leonhard Euler's first paper, which began topology, which is about how to walk through the bridges of Königsberg. Is it possible? There are seven bridges there, or were. And can you make a walk there that would pass through and bridges connecting islands, a walk that would pass through each bridge once and only once. Uh -huh. And so Euler got interested in this curious and funny problem, not even recognized as part of mathematics in his day, and gave a solution. And that's usually thought of as the beginning of it. So we will study a number of the great 
theorems of topology, and in some detail, some of them, uh, including the Brouwer fixed point theorem, which is a very, very striking theorem, and then the most shocking theorem, probably in all of modern mathematics, the the uh, the uh, Banach-Tarski theorem or construction, which takes a sphere. Imagine a sphere of yeah. unit volume, and you carve that sphere up into five congruent pieces, and you re, can you re, it demonstrates you could reassemble those five pieces into two spheres, each of which oh. is as big as the original sphere. Really? Yes. It's very shocking. Well, that sounds like the kind of thing I'd like to go and study. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Yes. Yeah. And it, it clearly, it does so by going into those spheres on the level of not just the microscopic level, but the level of the continuum of the point, taking part points, if it's possible to imagine that, or stretching out. It's a little bit like the problem of the expanding universe going so far deep down that you try to carve up point from point and and then keep going down, down, down. And because of the paradoxical nature of the infinite itself, it's possible to argue that you can do this crazy thing of reassembling a sphere into two or any number. For that matter, you could take something that's the size of a pea right. and reassemble it into something that's the size of the sun. I mean, this theorem has is so deep and paradoxical, it's still the subject of a great deal of argument among philosophers and trying to understand whether that use of the infinite is uh, legitimate, right, legitimate right. or not. So, See, I, I'm fascinated. For me, I mean, that sounds fascinating, and, and I genuinely want to come and study if I have the time with you. Um, for me, with a background in astrophysics, nothing mm. like your to your level, though, um, and I remember sitting in classes at St. Andrews University, and they were lectures, and here's the facts, and then mm -hmm. the fourth year of astrophysics was, here's what we think we know, but who knows? Um, you know, we, we don't know why this happens, so that's kind of your job. Go and discover it. Yeah. Um, go, go and work that out. For me, when you, you mentioned a couple of times about the universe expanding, that for me is is assumed. I think what's shocking is that it's accelerating. Mm. Um, every evidence seems to, every piece of evidence seems to suggest that the universe is accelerating. Um, and that, I think, poses, I would say, deep questions about the universe, the nature of being, and, and what does it mean? We've never discussed, we've never had a guest discuss on this show the end of the universe. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that basically everything will slowly whimper out and that we'll have the eventual heat death of the universe? What does this mean um, without giving too much away? From yourself? Sure. Oh, no, no. Sure. I mean, and, and most of this, uh, Rabbi Neil, as you know, is still unknown. We're at the very – we're talking about things that are on the very edge of discovery that are not really understood. What seems to be the consensus of people, you know, so far is that what is causing this acceleration is an energy in the vacuum itself that the most important – Apparently, for the last five billion years out of the 13 or so billion that the universe is uh, has existed according to modern cosmology, the dominant factor in its life has been the fact that the vacuum itself is filled with a kind of energy that causes space and time themselves to be expanding. That So that – Dark ma matter of all sorts, whether dark or luminous, are nothing by comparison to that. What is said now by people that project any 
forward is that gradually this expansion will grow and grow so that in a few billion years, ironically, we will be again alone. That is to say, this galaxy will seem to be alone. Astronomers of one billion years from now will look out and not see anything. Right. The galaxy itself, there's enough internal force and internal gravity to hold it together, but we will again be back in the situation, ironically, where people were, I suppose, in the 18th century, where they thought, well, they had just discovered that there was a galaxy, and the dominant, the first thought was, well, this galaxy is the universe. So the rest of the universe will have scooted away past the possibility of our observing it in any way, because it will then from our point of view, be expanding so fast that it would have exceeded the speed of light. Not that it would be traveling that fast, but basically we just wouldn't be – we would be out of communication with the whole rest of the universe. So um, that's – and what what goes past that, no one has any idea because the force that's being spoken about, the ultimate force, is the energy in the vacuum itself – in what seems to be nothingness, but which is the most potent, right. uh, the most port- potent force in the universe, I could scarcely imagine a more surprising and bizarre thought that that really hasn't ever. It never would have occurred, really anywhere, anytime in any earlier reflections on the universe that the vacuum itself could have any force, much less be the dominant force in the whole fate of the universe. We, don't worry. When, we, when I say we're going to take a break, we are going to come back. It's not the end of the universe as we know it. Um, we're going to take a quick break um, and uh, we're going to return to talking about the Science Institute and the end of the universe um, with Peter Pesic, uh, director of the Science Institute at St. John's College. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Peter Pesic, writer, uh, pianist, educator, director of Science Institute at St. John's College in Santa Fe, where he's musician in residence and tutor emeritus. And we were talking about the shocking um, realization that um, that what we knew or thought we knew about the uh, past in science is Clearly, we're now at a point of saying we we don't know uh, and um, that the universe is accelerating and when we don't really know the the reasons behind that. For me, I've got to I've got to say, having come from an astrophysics background and moving into a place of religion, part of me really wants to know about dark energy Mm. and dark matter. And part of me really doesn't. Mm. Part of me really wants to leave that sense of, wow, that, that is extraordinary. And I know that is a total departure from the scientific method, um, uh, which I grew up in. But there's something for me about this is beyond comprehension. And every time we try to comprehend something, we go, okay, fine, we figured it out. And then there's something else. There's something to me about dark energy, mm. dark matter. And maybe this is just a personal thing of I want to know, but I also don't want to know. Mm. Does that, and why don't you want to know? Tell me about that. <laughs> I think it's because um, because I think it's important. I I remember um, sitting in a, a lecture in St Andrews. It was a fourth year, and um, we were talking about uh, pulsars uh, as stars that uh, they say rotate regularly, uh, regularly, and um, therefore emit a regular s- um, signal to right. us. And they said, except for when they don't. 
Hmm. And the whole room just wrote down, oh, okay, except for when they don't. And I put my hand up and I said, I'm really sorry. Right. But if something is huh? spinning um, uh, constantly, a massive celestial body is spinning constantly and therefore is emitting a regular signal to us, then how can it not? How does it interrupt that signal? And I remember the lecturer saying, well, we think maybe it's star quakes, kind of like earthquakes. That is just the surface of the star shimmers mm. and so it makes a change. But we don't know. Mm. And then everyone moved on mm. as though, oh, okay. And for me, that was a transformative moment in my relationship with science because, because it was really powerful to be able to say, okay, I don't know. And, and for me, there's something about the, the scientific method that just brings so much um, – uh, wealth, prosperity, success, you know, increased lifespan, so much health, uh, to so many benefits to so many people, but also creates a sort of internal arrogance of, mm. oh, well, now we know. Now we know how the world works. Now we know how the universe works. Mm. So we are at the top of the universe because we know everything. Does that make any sense? Does it make well, me a although bad student? <laughs> I, no, not at all. Although it seemed to me that the story you described was a moment when we didn't know and it was sort of papered over. Yes. And then you were one of the few people in the room that said like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we don't understand. And I guess the real question is what to do about those moments of not understanding. Some of them, I thought you were going to go on to talk about the sense of mystery, which which is important especially for religious points of view, the sense of that there are certain things that might be profaned or or damaged, hurt, violated if they were disclosed or discussed. But it seemed to me that – and that I can understand, although it seems to me that the line from the Bible that keeps coming back to me is, man, stretch out thy understanding so that thou mayst comprehend these things, which has the slightly impatient air <laughs> of a father saying like, no, won't you try a little harder to sort of figure <laughs> out this dark energy stuff, you know, which I set up for you, <laughs> you know, like really, you know, you're not going to – so in that sense – I'm always thinking back to Francis Bacon and the others who are saying that there are these two books for us, the book of scripture and the book of nature itself. Huh. That And the, the nature was also a book that has was laid before us by the creator and that we were, as in that line I just quoted, um, we were encouraged if not required to sort of find out what – what what those things meant and that really i mean i would have i would the question i would have asked you was more like why did you say like i'm sorry we're just not going on here and <laughs> star quakes really star quakes, right. like now come on come on <laughs> because see, i thought that moment of not knowing was also the moment was really the beginning yes and the essence of the, the what the scientist wants you to know because it takes one person saying like I'm sorry, I've got to ask this question. And at St. John's, that's oh, very right. important for us, those questions. We really spend all of our time on the questions because many of these theories are answers. And what we're trying to do is, but what, yes, I could see that's an answer, but what, what, what exactly was the question? That's that actually that very interesting. Answering? I've never thought of that moment as, because that was the moment that started pulling me away from total immersion in science, but that mm. was actually probably the moment I was being the most scientific. Mm, yes. That's very interesting, actually. I'd, I'd never thought of that. Um, I think um, there's something for me very, very powerful. W when you said you thought I was going to be talking about the mystery, I, I don't want to 
when I come from a, a spiritual perspective or a religious perspective, it shouldn't be because of lack of knowledge. It shouldn't be because of the God of the gaps, basically. Mm -hmm. right. So therefore, the more I know, the less space there is for God. I don't think that's Good. the case for okay. me. Um, but I, I do think that's an important, you know, when you mentioned Bacon's two books, essentially, of scripture and nature, I think that's, there's a, there's a shared learning there, isn't there? Yes. I'm intrigued. I, I know we don't have too much time, but I'm intrigued. You, when for me science and nature is is one thing that i can readily connect together science and music or mm. physics and music mm -hmm. isn't something i would necessarily immediately bring together but that's definitely been a real focus in your life so i'm wondering what's the connection what what brings science and music together for you growing up both as someone who was studying music and passionate about music and someone that was interested in science i wondered about this a long time it took me the longest time to try to figure out what i thought because many people i would hear saying that it was because music was somehow scientific and over a very long time decades i realized it was really the opposite that that music was the source and science was the child and this took a very specific historical form that the Pythagoreans, which was a kind of religious uh, cult that but what worshipped both music and number at the same time and thought that number was somehow the key to the universe and a divine thing, they made the first connection between simple whole number ratios and the intervals of music, one to two is an octave, two to three right. is a fifth. They then had an enormous influence through people like Plato in particular and changed the nature of education completely. They set up and Plato sort of made a kind of – took this idea of the Pythagoreans and put it forward that, that there should be – that higher education for people should not be just memorizing Homer uh -huh. and maybe doing a little cup, a couple of simple sums, which is what Greeks – even Greek, well-educated Greeks did before him. But it should involve a sisterhood of four studies, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, a fourfold way. And this quadrivian was the basis of a thing that he called liberal education or that was, came to be called in the Middle Ages liberal education. Plato essentially set up the system of education that we have now in which there are these liberal arts. No, nobody even knows what they are. Music was one of them. Right. And so in my book, uh, Music and the Making of Modern Science, uh, I try to explain how it was that these four immortal sisters, they were thought of as really children of the muses, if not the muses themselves, they had children which are called the sciences. Ah. And that's how it all happened historically. And so we now have the situation, it's a kind of family dynamic, where there are these parents and children, both sets immortal, and there's a family dynamic. Probably the children are sometimes have a bit of an attitude and think that those four, those four crazy sisters. Well, yes, they were our parents, perhaps, but we're, you know, we're not stuck with them. And who knows what the four sisters think? But they're all still there, and it seems to me that that's the origin of the deep connection, which now goes back thousands of years between music and the sciences as they evolved in the West and then throughout the world. So. You're opening up a fascinating new way of looking at science. I can't help but hear what you're saying and view contemporary science as the petulant child. 
um, as the uh, but I know everything yes. and I don't need my parents um, I, I just need to do my thing and, and so on would that be a fair I think that's yes there, there's truth in that and there's certainly this child is, is not wanted to be continually reminded of the greatness of its parents or <laughs> even that they exist in some sense but they're still there we are speaking about immortal beings and they they continue on in whatever realm just as their children continue on and Periodically, I'm hoping, there is a kind of recognition of, yes, yes, there was some connection. Yes, we, the sciences, did come from something, something else. We were created by a kind of act of will by Plato and the others who changed the way right. to this day in which – and I mean I'll also remark that Plato had two other great innovations that people are not – which are considered crazy ideas. One was that slavery should be ended. Indeed. And the other is that women should be educated right. and treated equally with men, an idea which in his time was greeted – was considered laughable and we all know about its history and development. But those ideas which were acts of will and courage for him to maintain thousands of years ago, it took thousands of years – well, have, has progress been made? I suppose in some sense something has happened in that direction and it's owing, owing to the the power of a vision, a kind of philosophic and I think even religious vision about the nature of the universe that changed the way people learned, that changed the way then, also that they, act, that they were, their society, um, the way they treated each other. Um, the most fundamental and it would seem immovable political realities right. that there are slaves and that women are subjected to men have been over thousands of years and at least partly under the pressure of those ideas, um, they have changed very greatly. So I think the story of the sciences was only one facet of that very large story about the power of thought and even of reaching for a certain kind of ideal which at the time or even for thousands of years to come seems to be completely hopeless, right. but which over a very long time, things happen. So then with only a minute left, I appreciate, is your hope that in 2,000 years' time when hmm. people look back and read the works of Peter Pesic, um <laughs> That people say, yes, this was where it started with this, with this, with this bringing back together this music and science, bringing back together this a harmony, literally, um, between these. Is is that your hope for education in the future? Well, it's uh, I I don't presume to think that anybody will read me in, in even a hundred years, much less a thousand, but. It seems to me that yeah, the power of questions and the power of thought. I mean, I've inherited that from Plato and from the Greeks, and it is my hope that that the power of those ideas and of that questioning will continue into the future, long past the time I'm gone. Peter, this has been absolutely wonderful. I really hope we've only just opened this conversation. I really hope that you'll be able to come back to our show again and um, just share more of your wisdom and, and engage in more of this dialogue. It'd be my pleasure. So thank you to Peter Pesic, a musician in residence and tutor emeritus at St. John's College in Santa Fe. It really has been wonderful having you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.